0: Christians are people called by God to remember. But remember what exactly? I think it's rather simple, actually. We're to remember who God is and what He's done for us. Throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New, the people of God are called over and over and over again to remember God's covenant promises to them. Namely, that He would be their God and they, in turn, would be His people. And from that basis, they were called to respond in faith and in obedience. But if you've been reading the Old Testament, same Old Testament with me, sadly, you know all too well that particularly God's Old Testament people are remembered today, ironically, by us as people who consistently forget the Lord. And so they forgot how He created them and His image. They forgot how He delivered them from slavery, how He rescued them from exile. They forgot how He gave them a homeland, a Sabbath rest, festival celebrations, protective laws, a name, an identity, a, a, an existence. And so it would seem that Israel was unable, by its own willpower, or desire to remain faithful in remembering the Lord. But God, being rich in mercy, promised that He would forge a new and better covenant with His forgetful people. And it's one that we read about just days ago as a church as we've been reading through the Old Testament together. In Jeremiah 31, it says this, look, the days are coming This is the Lord speaking now. Look, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with Israel. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors that they broke. Instead, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. They will all know me from the least of them The greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. And so, the God who Israel constantly forgets all throughout her life is the same God that promises that He will remember His love for them by forgetting how they have forgotten Him. And He does so by fulfilling all the old covenant promises and forging a new one in his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so by Jesus' perfect life, and his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection, and his triumphant ascension, Jesus now invites us into this new way of living. See, as I look out at this congregation, I see that we're predominantly Gentile people here. We've been grafted into the promises of Israel. But as I also read the story of Israel, seeing that this is not my ethnic or national story, I see my spiritual story in Israel. So lest we Gentiles get high and mighty, like the ones in Romans, before Paul has to knock them down a few pegs, the story of Israel and her historic and national identity is, are the same for all of us in our spiritual story. We've forgotten who the Lord is. We've wandered far and away from Him. But we've been invited into a new way of living where our sins are the things that are forgotten and we as God's people are always remembered by Him, whether we remember Him all the time or not. But nevertheless, we're called to be a people that remember. And so we New Covenant people, both Jew and Gentile alike, are invited to commemorate this new way of living by, in two particular ways in our church, these wonderful ordinances and sacraments the Lord has provided for us. Things that we partake in to remember who He is and what He's done for us. The Lord has given us both baptism and communion, both of which are acts of remembering and worshiping. And so, for instance, in baptism we remember that we have died to our old selves, to our former sins, to that old, unfaithful, forgetful way of being. We've died to that. And we, with Jesus, have been buried to that old way of living. And the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus up from the dead on the third day is the one that rises us up from underneath the waters of death calling us to walk in newness of resurrection life. And so, when we go into these baptismal waters, we remember what we once were and we remember what we now are in Christ. It's an act of memory. An act of remembering. And similarly, in communion, we remember that Christ broke His body and shed His blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, for the salvations of our entire self, both body and soul. And so when we come periodically to this table and eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim and remember His saving death for us until He comes again in fullness. That too is an act of Memory, an act of remembering. And so, by these two ordinational and sacramental pillars that God has given to His church, we remember the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. We remember the thing that gives us our identity. We participate in these spiritual realities. When we remember our baptism and when we do this in remembrance of Him. See, Maranatha, one of the most spiritual things I believe that you can do this week, that you can do today, one of the most spiritual and godly things you can do is simply to remember. Remember who God is. Remember who God has made you to be. See, while all, all our uh, institutions here in the United States want us to be forgetful, they want us to have an amnesia about uh, our history, they want us to have an amnesia about our personal identity. See, social media wants to compete for our attention. So it's constantly flooding our brains with endorphins when we see those little notifications and and those scary articles. You won't believe who said this and what this person did. It's constantly trying to agitate us and compete for our attention and shrink our memory until it's away from nothing. And cable news does the same thing. It, it, It profits off of our anxieties. It warps our minds. And it warps our memories. See, that's the way the world works. That's the way that... The, 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 the so-called news of the world works. It, 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 it warps our understanding of reality. It changes us. It causes us to be fearful instead of faithful. It causes us to be anxious instead of trusting. And so, Christian, I'm convinced the most radical and revolutionary faithful thing you can do in the 21st century in a world that's competing for your heart and your mind and your soul and your will, the most faithful thing you can do as a Christian is to remember the promises of God revealed to us in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Our world is all about distracting you warping your sense of reality, skewing your perception about what is true. And so as the Old Testament prophets say to the people of Israel constantly, do not turn aside to the right or to the left from all the things that the Lord commands you today, and do not go after any other God, whether it's money, whether it's power, whether it's fame, whether it's control, simply worship the Lord your God and remember who He is and who He's made you to be. And so this morning, and just these few short verses, Peter is calling us over and over and over again to remember the truth that we now have in Jesus, by which we have been established as a church. Now, last week, Peter wanted us to remember our Christian roots. And those were a couple of things he described to us. He wanted us to remember that each Christian, no matter how young or old, no matter how rich or poor, no matter how great or small, already has these two things God's divine power and God's divine nature. See, God's divine power, we talked about last week, is the knowledge that we have. The intimate, personal, but also intellectual knowledge that we have of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's been given to us already. And God's divine nature is the spirit that keeps us from all the corruption and evil and forgetfulness of the world in which we live. And so these are the things that we discuss we already have now in part, but we will have one day in full. When we're resurrected to live in in harmony and joy with God and each other forever. But we already have these things. They've already been given. They're not something we achieve. They're not something we go after. They are things that we already have. That's why we describe them as our roots. But Peter also, in addition to us, in addition to wanting us to remember our roots, he wanted us to let those roots establish us in such a way that we now actively grow in our life and we grow in our character to be more like jesus own character revealed to us especially in the gospels adding to what we already have been given in christ by adding these seven things goodness knowledge self-control endurance godliness brotherly affection and above all these things love so god gave us our roots his power and his nature We have those already. But he's also telling us now, according to those roots, now grow and flourish by adding these seven Christ-like qualities. And now, as Peter is, is winding down, as he's exhaling his last bit of theological counsel in this world, he wants us to remember these things when he's gone. Last week, I, I described the, the letter of Second Peter as kind of a final will and testament. But this week, I want to talk about how this, is, uh, this letter is, is also a faithful will and testament. Because the things that Peter has lived out faithfully, not perfectly, not always consistently, but faithfully to the end, are the things that he wants us to live out faithfully in our lives too. So, looking again at the passage this morning. Now, across these few verses, Peter tells us to remember three times. He says, remember, 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 just across four short verses. And so in verse 12, he says, he's reminding us about these things. These things being what we just said about our roots, our growth, he's reminding us about these things. And verse 13, he says he's waking us up with a reminder. Okay, I think, I think I get what Peter is trying to say here. But verse 15, he says again, he will make every effort so that we are able to recall these things. Now folks, do you think that it might be important then to pay attention to what Peter is saying? Do you think it might be important to remember these promises of the Lord and these commands of the Lord? Let me ask you this. I've I've learned this as a a recently married man. When I'm maybe running the grocery store or supposed to do something to help my wife who works very hard, and she says, hey, honey, remember to do this thing. And then maybe ten minutes later she says, hey, just a reminder... Don't forget this thing. And right before I walk out the door, hey, did you write down that thing? Did you, did you re- will you remember that thing? I can't tell you how many times. I, ha- I just have to learn this lesson the hard way. Yes, I got it stored here. I get to the store. I see some fancy new potato chips. And I forget everything she said. But this is how our minds work. We're easily distracted. Our memories fail us. And so, how many times have I come home and said, all right, I got everything. And she's helping me unpack. and looking through the bag. She said, ah, you did not write down or remember the thing that I've asked you to remember. Peter is trying to do that for us, in a sense. Because Peter himself, think about his life. Think about how, as we read through the Gospels, he has some of the highest highs. He follows after Jesus. He's the first person to make the connection. Well, well, who do you think that I am? A lot of people have theories. Who do you think? He goes, I think you're the Messiah that's been written about all throughout the Old Testament. He, he, he has highs. He gets to see Jesus transfigured in His glory. Well, Peter's got a lot of lows too. He says a lot of silly things. He's the only disciple that gets out there on the water and walks towards Jesus. But then immediately he looks away and he starts floundering. When, when the authorities show up and Peter gets nervous, he starts swinging his sword and chopping people's heads up. I mean, he's just—he's—he's a very—he's a very, he's a very uh, flawed and forgetful guy in such a way. And so I think him saying Rem- "Remember, remember, remember, church," is Peter speaking from experience. I always tell this story, I know it's it's probably getting old to you, but Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, when he would teach his students and they would have chapels together, he would always get back to talking about the Gospel, what the Gospel is, what the Gospel means, what Jesus, how he's the the key of the Gospel. And his his student would ask him at some point, they said, why do you always talk about the Gospel? Why do you always do that? Can't we learn something? Let's let's. Talk about the minor prophets. Let's discuss that. Help us to understand what these epistles mean. He says, I always tell you about the Gospel because you always forget it every week. I'm convinced the reason why the Lord wants us to gather for worship, at least on Sundays as as a weekly thing, is because we can't go much longer than that without forgetting everything we heard last Sunday. I mean, if we're honest, we probably need to do this three or four times a day, every day, to remember these promises. That's how forgetful we are as people. And that's not to add, goodness gracious, it is depressing to read the the research on how the human brain is changing because we're so agitated by these things flashing in our face every five seconds. And we've laughed about this at... At my house for years, you're, you're watching a, a, a golf or something quiet sport. They're whispering, "All right, Tiger's lining up for this final putt. And you can sink it." But we 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 have to go to these messages, and then it's rooms to go, and it's blaring, and it's you know, it's just there. There's you know, new Diet Coke or something, and it's just we're just like babies. Or we're, we're flash colors and loud noises all the time. We're just so agitated, we can hardly remember to breathe even. We live in a world that is so hell-bent on distracting us from everything. I think the thing we need to hear from Peter afresh is to tell us, slow down and remember. What a crucial thing that is. Peter seems to think this is so important. Not only does does he call us to remember for the sake of our worship and witness, constantly, weekly, daily, and even hourly to remind ourselves of these things. But he, he, even by the end of his letter, circles back to this theme of remembering. And In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he underlines everything he's saying here by saying again. Like my wife says to me when I go out grocery shopping, he says, dear friends, this is now the second letter I've written to you. And in both letters, I wanted to stir up your sincere understanding by the way of this reminder so that you would recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets of the Old Testament, by the commands of our Lord and Savior given to you through your apostles in the New Testament. I think this is such a comfort when we really slow down to think about it. And our day and age when influencers are constantly trying to sell us on some new mode of enlightenment. There are people, this is amazing to me, I know we talk about this phenomenon, there are people that get filthy, stinking rich on the internet by brands sending them products to try. And they film themselves putting on some new makeup or trying new clothes or trying some new drink, or exercise routine. And that, the, their whole job is to be an actor that it just does paid endorsements. And these people are seen all over the world. There's constantly, every time you turn, you open the newspaper, open your phone, or computer, or television, or or whatever, you're inundated by all these... This new innovative thing is going to finally make you the person you've always wanted to be. We're, we're constantly being told that if we do this, we'll, we'll finally find that, that, that thing we've been longing for. And, and we're, we have become so battered by the salesman mentality that I, I, I hate to say it, but when I start talking to a, a person out in public and they're friendly and they start talking about something they're interested in, I immediately think, how are they trying to sell me on something? Maybe some of them just want to talk, but a, a lot of them, when I, I, when I hear that, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm about to get caught up in <laughs> a scam. Elise, just a couple days ago, got a text from somebody. said, hey, this is so-and-so. Um, we, you know, we missed our connection earlier, but I was wondering if you're still in town wanting to catch up. And she wrote back and said, sorry, I think you have the wrong number. And then the person said, oh, I'm so embarrassed. And then they start sharing all this stuff and they're like, hey, you should ch- visit me on this website. And so, of course, it was like a scam to get your money and info, but even, even that, that's, that's the world we live in, where, where people ringing your doorbell or m- m- sending sending you a text message, or giving you a call. It's all about you being sold and distracted on something. That's everywhere to where we're totally on guard against everything and everybody. And so the comforting truth in our day and age where we're being told to look out and, and, and ward away, warned away from these people and, and constantly have our, our hackles raised about everything. The comforting truth that Peter tells us, is that we don't have to participate in any invention or innovation or, or, or new thing. We simply have to return to this eternal and ancient truth that is somehow always fresh and always new for us. This truth that although we were sinners, Christ died for us. That God loved us when nobody else did. That Jesus came amongst us to save us from our sins and the spirit reminds us that we belong to christ and that we're beloved of his every single day That's what peter wants to remind us of peter wants to remind us we already belonged we are already beloved we don't need to do anything buy anything uh, be anything we don't have to achieve anything we just have to exist as god made us to be I think this is what Peter means when he says in verse 12, these things you already know. See, the the beautiful thing is as he's calling us to to grow, as he's calling us to remember, these are things that we already know about inherently. They're not really even new things that we learned. They're just the things that he's calling us to remember and to be established in, in them and to find our rest in their truth. See, the earliest church, the one to whom Peter was originally writing when he sent this letter, or was sent on his behalf, they lived lives that were technologically very far removed from us, but in every other way, very similar to us. Because they too lived in an empire that thought their beliefs were silly and antiquated and outdated and folksy. They too were accosted by intentional misinformation in their society about their faith. They too were pressured to spend their money on satisfying every single one of their empty lusts. Maybe they'll find fulfillment that way. And they too were tempted to give in to this manipulative fear that made them hateful of everybody around them and suspicious of everything. But above all, Peter wanted them to remember one thing, the Gospel of grace by which they were being saved. Not according to their own faith or works or anything else, but because Christ has been faithful for them and has done a work on their behalf. So he wanted to remind them of the good news that the sin that tears us up on the inside the sin that tears us apart from each other, the sin that tears us and pulls us away from God has already been dealt with in Jesus Christ. Being rooted in that truth or being established, as Peter says here, which just means being stabilized, being strengthened by it, will keep us from stumbling and falling away from the faith. And we need to remember that. Because the fact of the matter is, is that we're on the same trajectory as Peter. Because we, like him, have encountered Jesus. We've met this risen Lord. We've been transformed by meeting Him. Everybody that's here today, I'm convinced, is here because they've met Jesus. They've, they've seen the, the, the wonderful things that He says. They've experienced the wonderful things that He does. So they're like, we're like Peter in that sense, but we're also like Peter because there's been so many times that we've thought too highly of ourselves and our spiritual maturity and then found that right after we brag about something we've done for the Lord, we go and actively disobey Him. How we've bragged about our faith in Christ and then turned right around and betrayed Him when the going got tough. And so we, like Peter, are still in a world that is crumbling and coming apart, and a body that's also doing the same. And it's groaning to be renewed. It's, it's, it's wanting to be freed from the power of death. See, Peter talks about himself here. He talks about his body here as an old tent. And we know... That First of all, tents are a temporary thing. So even a brand new tent is not something that we know is built to last forever. But there are tents out there that have been out there for a long time that are deteriorating, that are crumbling, that are blowing away like dust in the wind. And so both Peter and Paul uh, tap into something here. When they describe the human body as as a kind of temporary tent or a tabernacle is another word for it. These things that are the harsh wilderness of life and the the, the dusty winds of death are just tearing these things apart until they're almost not becoming useful anymore. That's what's happening to our human bodies. But something else that tabernacles and tents and, and bodies have in common is that all throughout the Scriptures, they are God's chosen place where His presence comes to live with His people So I think it's interesting that Peter chooses the metaphor, the illustration of his body being a tent. Because while tents are are, are, are flimsy and impermanent, while they're always on the move and never established, they're also the place in the Old Testament where we see God comes to live with His people. And so, God did come to live with His people in a tabernacle in the wilderness. But that was just a temporary measure. Because eventually we see that the story of Scripture leads us that God is going to move into a better and and more uh, more permanent habitation with His people. Not a tent of canvas, but a a temple of stone. And so, Solomon builds this great temple and, and just like at Sinai, we see the cloud descends. God's presence comes to live in the camp with Israel on the move. God's presence comes to live permanently with Israel in Jerusalem. But sadly, just like that tent of canvas, this temple of stone will turn out not to be enough. That will also come crumbling down. We're in the portion of the Old Testament now in our Bible reading where this temple's on the verge of imploding. But then, you know, we'll just in a, a a few weeks, we'll get to the story of Ezra and Nehemiah when God's been faithful. He's returned people back from Babylon. They go and they, they, build, they rebuild these gates and these walls and this, these, these temples. But that lasts for a few hundred years and right in the earliest church, again, that temple comes crumbling down, not by the Babylonians, but now by the Romans. And so it seems that tent and temple aren't really a viable solution for God's permanent presence. So God's final solution for His presence in the midst of people. His ultimate tabernacle, His ultimate temple came to live with us and Jesus Christ. The tabernacle of God, the temple made flesh. The Word made flesh. See, Jesus is the glory and presence of God. The place where God comes to be our God and the the place where we come to be God's people. And 1 Peter, he tells us that we are tents that have been remade into stone. We have been repurposed and refashioned in Jesus who is the cornerstone and the foundation. And we are being built into a new and uh, eternal temple together with him. This is a beautiful image. God is not literally turning us into to rocks, although I know as some of us get older and, and, and a little... <laughs> uh, there's more of a rind on us. Maybe we feel a little rockier, and, and like that could be more of a literal thing. But it's not. It's a, it's a spiritual metaphor in which that God is making us into something new. And Jesus, as the temple of God, is incorporating us into that temple. In other words, the church is the place where God's presence now dwells because the church is the place where Jesus now lives. Whether it's in a building like this, whether it's in a a little cinder block building in the Amazon, whether it's in somebody's house in Sri Lanka, whether it's in a little storefront in China, whether it's in a big, beautiful cathedral in Germany, whether it's in a a little church like here in, in Lilburn, Georgia, those buildings are not where God's presence is because they're buildings, but those buildings are where God's presence is because His people are there, and that's where His presence ultimately is. See while like Peter our outer human our temporary tent is fading away from this world just beyond salvaging because of sin and death our inner human we read from Paul's being renewed every day we're growing towards an eternal future with the presence of God through Christ forever where our bodies will be made new we'll be and resurrection bodies that are free from all the burdens of this life. So Peter's last words here are about waking us up from the stupor of this fleeting life. Waking us up from the distraction and reminding us to trust the fact that the same God who gave us us roots in Jesus will give us resurrection by His Spirit. And while we may not know much of anything else about anything in this difficult and confusing life, we, with Peter in verse 14, can surely say that the Lord Jesus has made this very clear to us. And so church, Peter says in, in, in verse 15, our last verse here, that he will make every effort for the few days that he has left, every. Effort to remember these things himself so that he can in turn remind us of these truths until his tent altogether departs from this world and is transformed into God's new temple. And so his hope for us is that we might do the same thing. That are living in, in this world now and our, our tents are becoming old and raggedy waiting and hoping, knowing that God will make all things new. So indeed, Maranatha, my last, my last word to you is to remember. To remember there's no more powerful act of worship and witness than you can do today than remembering. To with Peter and the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, to remember these promises, to remember these Gospel truths, and to remember the Lord's commands. For that will now and forever be with Peter and all the Christians that have come before us, our faithful will and testament that we leave to this dying world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to remember these things the gospel of your Son, so that being rooted and established in them, we will never stumble and fall away. And as our outer selves fade, renew us inwardly every day until we are raised again in your presence forever. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask all these things. Amen.